Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. episode, I talk with Barry Taylor. Barry is a theologian, philosopher, musician, artist, academic, and writer who has spent more than 30 years challenging traditional notions of religion and church and creating alternative communities built on the idea that life is uncertain, the future is unwritten, and that none of us has the answer. Barry's work collapses the boundaries between the sacred and the profane, blurs the lines between theism and atheism, and raises new questions about life, death, and everything in between. Barry also writes books, makes music with his friends, produces daily artworks, and spends a lot of time in coffee shops reading. Born in the UK, he recently returned to London after living in Los Angeles for many years. In this conversation, we speak about his latest book, Sex, God, and Rock and Roll, catastrophes, epiphanies, and sacred anarchies. The book is a theological memoir about life. It's organized around Freud's four palliatives, art, sexual love, intoxicants, and religion, from Freud's book, Civilization and Its Discontents. As a way of dividing up the essays, these sections focus on the biological, aesthetic, experiential, and spiritual aspects of life. Barry has lived An extremely interesting life, from a sound technician for ACDC to a professor at a marketing school and beyond. 
Barry and I are both bricolures, piercing together a philosophical life out of a multitude of sources. I think you'll be challenged and drawn to this conversation. Remember, as always, continue the conversation. Barry, it is so fucking good to have you on my podcast. I have followed your work for a long time. I, I know you don't know that. Um, when my life was falling apart and I was doing my own therapy, I would actually turn to a podcast that you were on several times. At that point, it was called The Catacombic Machine. Oh, yeah, 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 with Joseph. Yeah, and... Um, your sort of journey out of faith helped me through the same kind of process. So when you agreed to be a, uh, a guest on my podcast, I was just elated. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, really? no, I, I appreciate that. And, and I know kind of the, the, the main kind of point of the, of this episode is to discuss your latest book, uh, sex, God and rock and roll. <laughs> yeah and uh I've, I've actually read it twice so I, I have a lot of thoughts on it and you know we can kind of go wherever the quote-unquote spirit leads you know we, we don't have to sure. stay necessarily with the book but i, I thought it'd be kind of a a way to kind of shape our conversation if that's cool with you yeah fire away i'll, I'll roll i'll roll along with you i'm, I'm easy okay that's awesome so where, where I kind of wanted to start was I know in the years of following you on Instagram, you do a lot of work with like collage and yeah. it was really cool to see in your book that you kind of describes yourself as like a bricolure, right? Yeah. And, and that resonates with me because at the end of the day, if I'm really honest with where I'm at in terms of my own individual journey and how I view therapy and anything else in life, I, I'm really sort of an eclectic bricolure. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to piece together some type of coherent philosophical spiritual life out of many sources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah. I mean, I, I think it, for for a while it was uh, I, I, I did because I, I I always had like multiple and quite often sort of parallel interests and things. And you know, we we live um, in a world where people ask you all the time, you know, what's the one thing 
You know, if you could do just one thing with your life, you could just go one place. If you could just read one book, you know, it's always this singular, the idea that you can condense and reduce your life down to kind of some singular vision or mission. And I know that some people are perhaps more single-minded, but I was never like that. And um, for the longest while, I, I, I thought that I really needed to, uh, that like that I'd missed something, you know, mm. that I was not um in the right space or something because i was always yeah well i i I like this but i also like this and i don't want to have to choose between the two and um that whole notion you know of like the bricolage where you just draw from multiple sources what what i realized is is that the I mean, I'm not even sure what I think about the idea of the self, to be quite honest. I I think it's probably a mythic thing anyway. But I I, I think we're all – it's a bit like, you know, that that Dylan song, I Contain Multitudes. Yes. You know, um, which I think think he stole from a poem. I I don't know. Yeah, I think – yeah, it was Walt Whitman. Yeah. So, you know, um, I I, 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 I think that – I I just decided to to kind of live my life going up and down the various realms of interest and and I realized you know I, I mean I've been doing collage for such a long time and, and I realized that it's actually very reflective of the way I live my life mm. or bits and pieces from everywhere and bits that wouldn't necessarily fit and yet they do because you put them together in a particular permutation that works that works for you in 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 your in in your life and um that's about as narratival as i get with with existence i'm not i i I really am not looking for some overarching uh theory or scheme or plan or methodology for life i just sort of try and take it as it comes and piece it together as it comes along and i'm not trying to make like one big story of my life um i'm just quite happy playing around with the various bits and pieces and seeing where they all fit and sometimes they don't and sometimes you know? they don't no that's fucking great man i i love that so i i think at that level we're sort of uh, kindred spirits because even yeah. though even though it frustrates some people in my life that it seems like i'm all over the place with ideas and yeah. concepts and practices it's just what fits my pluralistic psyche you know the the best if i'm honest yeah uh, uh, yeah i mean as i said you know i i i think we we live in a world where people want people to operate singularly it's more controllable that way yeah it's also more well i mean there's there's no doubt that at times you you do or you can find yourself sort of trying to you know what am i doing you know or where am i going or and then it's like well what what why do i have to be going somewhere Mm. you sort of come to terms with um the various myths and ideologies that we just accept as the way things are. And then you just go, oh, maybe it's not like that. You know, maybe I don't actually have to be going anywhere. I maybe like maybe going around in circles is, is the thing to be doing right now. You know, I don't, as much as I'm a sort of um, now and moving forward person, um, I, I, 
I don't need like some propulsion to be moving towards some better version of me or mm. something like that. Oh. I read a lot of, I don't know if you've read much of um, Adam Phillips. No, I haven't. I, I know that you've mentioned him and you quote him, but yeah. I, I haven't gotten into him. Adam Phillips, he's a, a, a British uh, writer and he's a psychoanalyst. And um, his two latest books, which uh, are companion pieces that came out like six months apart. Okay. One is one is called On Wanting to Change. Mm. One is called on, Get, uh, on Getting Better. And it's really about um, our, our cultural obsession with change, mm. why we think we need to change, and then what kind of changes we think we need to make. And it's really about the kind of myth of potential and growth that dominates our cultural landscape. Mm. He sort of wants to challenge that and go, maybe that's actually not the best kind of changes that we should be making because it doesn't actually seem to be working. Mm. The second book is really, so when we say we want to get better, what what are we trying to get better from? That's that's a great question. And so I, I, I think the, the reason that those particular books resonated with me is because... Um, it's very easy to get on the hamster wheel of being a better version of yourself. And, 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 you know, believe me, I mean, I'm not saying therefore you just, you know, remain an asshole in life. Right. There's I mean, some pieces I, of shit out there that I, I wish would uh, get better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and I've got my own, I mean, many, many years ago, I, I, I was approached by somebody to contribute to an article in a, in a leadership magazine and that the simple question was, um, you know, what what one thing, like one virtue, do you sort of live by? And it, it was it was actually for a Christian leadership thing. And I said, <laughs> well, I, I try not to be as big an asshole today as <laughs> yesterday. And um, was a little, you know. I'm going to make that into a therapeutic goal for my first, for one of my clients is this, yeah. this is going to be how you get 1% better tomorrow. Stop being an asshole. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, because we, we, we know what we're like. I mean, you know, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, right. we, we know where we need to pay attention, but the idea that there's some, you know, the, the fully realized version of me or you. Right which religion trades in an awful lot. Yeah. Christianity, you know, particularly modern Christianity trades a lot in this idea of, you know, really it's self self realization through God. Mm. And, um, I, I, I actually think it's quite problematic because I think it creates this sense of, um, always feeling like we haven't quite, matched up to our potential mm. another word potential stupid word yeah no i like that <laughs> i like that okay can, can i ask you a question about your childhood from some of the things you said in your book you pretty much and then you want yeah so and and i, I want to kind of frame it with a quote from from one of my favorites I, I i know that you're more of like a freudian but but you know one of his students uh carl jung once yeah. said 
that the greatest burden of the child is the unlived life of the parent. And yeah. as, as I kind of read your book a couple of times and was trying to process it from kind of therapeutic perspective, it kind of struck yeah. me that your parents didn't necessarily fuck you up through like intense trauma or abuse, but it was through their own unlived life. Um, and I don't yeah. know if you would agree with that or, or, or if that sparks anything in you, but I mean, it's, it, it's definitely an interesting, uh, way of framing it i mean i you know i sort of grew up up in a what you could probably call a classic british working class family Mm. of of a particular era where it was you know my parents came of age before youth culture and before the the modernization of contemporary life and you know social mobility and stuff like that so my parents came of age in a world where if especially in britain you sort of knew your place and you stayed in your place gotcha so working class so there was never really much expectation or or the idea of ambition Mm. really kind of very muted in in their their sort of world and it seemed to have been um really an exaggerated part of both my parents lives um particularly my 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 dad who just seemed to have absolutely no ambition whatsoever mm. and really a sort of passive passive response to 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 life and um and so we, we sort of lived a lot and, and as you said it what you know it wasn't hostile it wasn't well it wasn't anything there was very little engagement and very little interest part of that was um they they both had fairly uh low-paying menial jobs so there was a lot of survivalist you know, stuff going on, just keeping a roof over your head and uh, and stuff like that, and sure. you know, long working hours and things. But 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 I, but I think um, their lack of that what that translated into was a real kind of um, strange thing, where they just didn't seem to show very much interest at all about anything particularly mm. particularly particularly my, my my brother and i you know it's like there, there was all sometimes always a question it's like well why did you bother having kids right because you don't seem to want to put i mean but you know i mean it wasn't like i wasn't deprived of food or clothing sure, or sure. shelter. but i'm just talking about input like i see you know kids today and that you know i mean today you have to deal with like helicopter parenting right you know and i mean my parents never once came to a parent event at school they never came to my school they never came to a school event they never asked me about my homework they never asked me about my day never asked me about what i was doing with my life i mean i sort of 
half moved out of my family home while I was still at school. Wow. <laughs> moved in with some older guys that I knew down the street and mm. I would sort of show up after three or four days. And uh, my mum would just go, oh, you're back then. Mm. And, and it was like, you know, okay, so uh, you really don't care what I do. And on one level, you go, wow, that's amazing. Look how free you are. You can do what you want. But deep down inside, you go, yeah, but um, maybe I, 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 I want to be resisted a little. Mm. You know what I mean? So oh, that, absolutely. That, and, and there is that, you know, again, <laughs> this, will, this will be the Adam Phillips uh, segment of, of the talk. But sure. Adam Phillips has a really interesting book uh, called Missing Out. Mm. And it's about unlived lives. And, and, and his theory is that uh, we all have the life that we live and then the life that we haven't lived. Mm. And usually the life that we haven't lived is the one that we think we would most like to live. Mm. It's where our dreams and our wishes and all that, you know, so I wish I was this or that. And, and, and the idea, of course, is that because your unlived life is the life that gets most attention, the life that you live is even less fulfilling. Mm. So I don't know if my parents, I don't know if they really had an, I think my mum probably had a bit more of an unlived life than, than my father. My father seemed to have just resigned himself to a certain world. Got you. Because even, I mean, without getting too deeply into it, I mean, sure. he worked for basically the British equivalent of like the gas company. Okay. And, you know, he, he sort of dug holes in the road and put gas mains in and stuff like that. But he never got any uh, promotion because he wouldn't do something as simple as learn to drive. Mm. So when my father retired at 65, he was still going out at five o'clock in the morning with like 20-year-old guys spending eight hours a day digging up roads with a shovel you know, and and didn't have to do that because he'd been doing it for like forty years. He could have been a boss, right, right. But he just wouldn't. Mm. So much of that, he just he never liked to go away on a holiday. Didn't have a bank account. I mean, it was like mad. Really, it's kind of mad, you know. And um, and that sort of attitude rolled over into you know well what are you doing you know not but but really a sort of disinterested oh yeah so you're touring the world with a rock and roll band huh when you get a job no you know but no interest in that like sure except it was but so i don't know you know it's um but and and that of course i i i think it's like that philip larkin poem you know they they fuck you up, your mum and dad. They don't mean to, but they do. You know, that's the yeah. open stanza. Yeah. And um, I, I, I think, I mean, there's always that relationship where parents want for their children. Well, that that's the thing. I don't know that my parents wanted anything for for me particularly. And that was the that was the challenge. Right. The challenge is then what do you do when you feel like the people who brought you into the world really kind of don't give a shit what you do with your life. Mm. That was, that was a, that, that was a, 
that's been a work in progress. That's yeah, really no, I bet. <laughs> I, I bet. And 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 I, I I say that also with with a, a certain amount of confused affection. Mm. As I said, there was no violence. There was no. There, it, it was just passive. Sure. And that passivity was quite. That that's a big thing to overcome, actually. Mm. So let me ask you this, just kind of as a segue. Um, that shut you up. <laughs> no, no, that's good. I love it. I love it. Uh, you know, you said you kind of toured with the rock band. I mean, one of my questions was, if in my understanding, you kind of were a sound technician for ACDC? Yeah, I was, I was a roadie. Yeah. Okay, you, 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 you were a roadie? You know, what, what I want to know about that is, what about the human experience did you figure out or, or did you learn from being with that band for, for the amount of time that you were? Well, um, what, you know, I, again, I, I grew up in an era when, uh, and and for me, uh, music was a big factor in my life. I've Mm. always loved music. I played music, um, had lots of musician friends and stuff. and, And music was very central to my sort of social and cultural life. And, uh, so, and, and I think, you know, growing up in the, the 70s and, and 80s and stuff like that, uh, uh, you know, a pre-digital world um, and a pre-cable television world, really, um, vinyl and, and records were, they were like artifacts from the future or something. Mm. You, you know, oh, yeah. Music, music was a kind of potent signpost about what was going on. And, and so going on, on, on tour with bands and stuff, which, which I, I, I sort of, it was one of those things. I lucked into it. It wasn't like an intentional thing. I just had a couple of friends that were involved and an opportunity came up and I took it and uh, I worked with a whole bunch of bands and, and did a whole bunch of travel. And, and, I, and I took the job because I liked to travel and it, seemed like um, a good way to get away from where I was and um, but you know you you then get carried into this world that holds a mythic place in your head the world Mm. of rock and roll you know the first sort of groups and stuff that I worked with were were American R&B and soul bands and stuff like that which was the kind that I was raised on which to me was much more uh impactful even than I mean I had no idea who ACDC were when I took the job I took the job because uh, they were going to America and <laughs> I hadn't been to America and it seemed like an, uh, a fun thing to do sure. but I, I mean I literally had never heard their music until the first gig that I ever did working for them wow. I had no idea what kind of music they, they, they were at all I mean, I, I knew they're a rock band, but that's about all I knew. Um, but, you know, I, I, you sort of enter that world which exists in this kind of mythic place in your head because, you know, you grow up in the countryside in England in a working class family. And it's particularly back then when, you know, uh, rock stars look like people from another planet. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because oh, yeah. Because there was a 
it was a different a different a different vibe then you know so you enter into that world and then you very quickly realize that it, it's a world like any other because it's full of people mm. and th- there's glamour but beneath the glamour there's the usual bullshit and the sheen wears off fairly quickly sure because it's actually quite hard work i mean mm. it's fun it's fun. I mean, you know, it's a great, I mean, I have no regrets. It was wonderful. And I really, uh, liked it for, um, a long time until I got bored. Um, but, uh, I, I think it opened my eyes to the fact that, uh, well, fame is a joke. Mm. Um, and, uh, people, People are people, and too much money seems to mess up everybody. Wow. Man, do we need to hear those messages today? <laughs> and that's not to say that, you know, that there's not value there. I mean, there are great people. I mean, it, it, you know, uh, there. Are, I mean, I met wonderful people. It's not a dismissal of it. But sure. you, know, you sort of ask me, what, what, what do you learn? You, you learn that people are people, and everybody has their challenges and their struggles Mm. and um but there's also the energy that comes from being there's an energy that happens from being in those environments where um no because if you think about it if you're if you're working for a band and you're traveling around whatever town you're in that's the highlight of that audience's week oh yeah you're like fucking gods i would imagine you know you've come in to throw the party of the week for these people or the month or whatever it is. Oh yeah. And, um, so there's an energy that, that, that comes from that, that, that becomes quite hard to resist. And, mm. and even I think for the performers themselves who, who are, um, the recipients of, you know, all of the adulation and, uh, and stuff like that. And, and again, depending on your personality, how you handle that is, uh, a crapshoot. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it's like, I, I, I said, you know, going on the road with a rock band is like running away to the circus. And then what you realize (laughs) is is that the circus tent doesn't put up itself. Wow. That's good. And, and, uh, the, the the high wire has danger attached to it. You, you, you know what I mean? I and, do. And, and so there is no world of easy and pure escape. But uh, no, that's great. Okay, so okay, but can- I, oh, oh, but what it also taught me is that uh, you can work, and it can be an adventure. Hmm. It doesn't have to be mundane. I mean, not everybody can go off and work with a band and not everybody would want to and nor probably should should everybody go off and work with a band. But but we don't have to lock ourselves into uh, mundanity always. Mm. Oh, that's good. So, okay, let me ask you this. In the book, you reflect quite a bit about human sexuality yeah. What, what would you say are are some of the things that religion gets right about sex, and what are some of the things that it gets wrong? <laughs> um, uh, 
Well, if we're talking, uh, if we're talking Christianity, which is about the only one I think um, I, I, I would weigh in and say I have any opinions about in terms sure. of religion, sure. religion and sex. Um, I think it's what the the problem is. It's generally the the interpreter's uh, particular translation of what Christianity says about sex that's the most problematic. Mm. Really, the Bible doesn't say an immense amount about sexuality. And the things that it does say are um, historical and contextual. And it's very difficult, I think, to apply hyper-individualistic, post-enlightenment, post-modern individualism, Western individualism, you know. Sure. Uh, onto ancient texts without realizing that there are huge disparities within the cultural horizons of, uh, of how those things are un understood. You know, so we, we presume that, uh, you know, because people are people, true, but we're not static as human beings mm. in our experience of life is, I mean, we're not first century people or fifth century people or medieval people. We're, we're 21st century people. And we live in a world where there are, uh, I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day um, and we were talking about, you know, uh, the ever growing um, options around sexuality and, uh, and gender. Sure. So it's almost old school to be talking about homosexual or bisexual right. or gay, lesbian. That's like so 20th century. <laughs> so true. You know, you know what I mean? Yes. You know, I mean, we're, we're queer, we're trans. And I'm not, being, I'm not dismissing what I'm saying. You know, the reality is, yeah. is that we've, got, we've, we've, we've entered a, a realm where there are multiple options for many for many people, you know, which creates in some ways a lot of uh, freedom for people. Um, sometimes I think that that freedom is, I mean, I would never say, you know, if somebody says I'm queer, um, I, I would never argue against that. I do think sometimes that is a great way of safely saying I haven't sorted it out yet. Mm. For some people. Sure. You know, and, and I and, and I think that's a legit thing. I'm not saying that they're not queer or anything right. like that. I, I, I'm just saying I, I, I think that, that there's a there's actually a beautiful safety in that because I think sexuality is a bit of a minefield and mm. it's it's challenging for people and religion um religion unfortunately in my estimation 
veers too quickly and all too often into moralizing. Yes. And uh, we, we presume certain things and we read certain things into texts and uh, we say, well, this is, you know, how God wants things or, 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 or whatever. And, and, and I just don't think it's, it's that simple. Um, I, I, I think that, um, well, for a staff, like I said, there's not that much said about it. And what's said about it is, you know, it's like in, in uh, Roman culture, um, the issue was not um, homosexuality. The issue was active versus passive. Right. So the, the challenge was if you were male, you were meant to be active in sex, not passive. passive the passive role was a female role. So um, how that plays out in, 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 in you know, um, homosexual, you know, or, or whatever, non-heterosexual activities or whatever, in, in, in um, early, like, Roman, Greek cultures had, had a lot more to do with the role that somebody took, whether it was active or or passive, mm. you, you know, well, sure. that's not how we, that's not how we work it out today. That's not how we, that's not how we, that's not how, I mean, you think, well, you know, or, or, or a little think, think about the whole deal with, um, Christians and masturbation. Oh, geez. And, and, you know, the, the old Testament story <laughs> of, of Onan, of Onan you know, right. mean, literally the sin of Onanism. <laughs> is, a, is a Catholic sin, right? That they say is masturbation, right? It's not masturbation. If you read the story, what it is is Onan was supposed to make his brother's widow right, pregnant, and he pulled out and spilled his seed on the ground. It's not the spilling of the seed that is the sin of Onan. It's not getting his widowed, his brother's widow pregnant. Now, I would say that raises some complicated issues uh, in family relationships in the 21st century. Yes. <laughs> I have a responsibility to impregnate my uh, sadly dead brother's mm. widow, and that's an obligation. For a start, I might be married. So my, my point in saying that is, is that we, we, well, I guess what I would say is this. As with sexuality, so most things, it's complicated. Mm. And to try and make it simple actually makes it more complicated. Well said. Because we we become reductionist, you know. It's I I, I mean I I talk to any number of people who grew up in purity culture, mm. where essentially they did things like anal sex, right? 
because that's not sex. So you get fucked in the ass. <laughs> right. But, but not, you know, vaginally penetrated. And therefore, you're still a virgin. So you haven't had sex. Uh, okay. Or whatever else you do or don't. I mean, I've talked to people who... who I have too. You know, so that's not, that's not a one-off. That was a lot. You know, so... Um, because we always find our way around the limits. It's just that we're like the Pharisees, you know. It's like, well, who is my neighbor, you know? I think that's part um, of what it means to be human. Yeah, everybody, you know. And, and, uh, and, and yeah, so... I, now, I, I do think... The, the there are things within religion that ought to contribute mm. to uh, human sexuality, but it's not about the acts themselves. And again, this is the problem because in Christianity, particularly, it gets reduced down to particular acts. Right. You know what you're doing so, with your genitals. Yeah, what you're doing with your genitals when, you know, that's only part of sexuality anyway. Mm. But, I, but I do think, like, things like respect and care for the other and uh, mutuality and hospitality and mm. generosity and mercy and kindness and all those kind of things, which I think are in, integral factors in, in both human relationships and human sexual relationships. Absolutely. Are, are really key. But what happens with people, that I think is much... Uh, it's like, you know, um, you have a lot of... And this doesn't get talked about very much. But you get a lot of retired people, elderly people, who choose to live together. Technically, if you like, old school, they'd be called living in sin. <laughs> right. Well, why do they do that? Well, they do that because culturally, if you marry somebody, your pension gets shrunk. Mm. And it's tough enough to live on. I've, I've talked to people like that as well. Oh, absolutely. You know I mean? Absolutely. Well, we could get married, but, you know, we'd lose our pension and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, so we have to look at these things, I, I think, a little more honestly and openly and have real real. Many, many years ago, sorry, I'm waffling a little bit. No, no, no. And, many, and if you don't mind in a moment, I want to kind of throw something out there to see what you think about just in, in my experience working with teenage boys. But, but don't forget what you're going to say. Yeah, well, many, many years ago, in, 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 when, when I, in one of the sort of iterations of church that I had, we decided we used to have these like midweek conversations. Okay. And so we decided, um, because it sort of came up, uh, that we would have a, a conversation about sex. Mm. Well, that conversation lasted six months. Wow. And at the end of it, we wrote essentially a sort of sexual charter mm. for our community. And um, uh, some people were incensed by it because we didn't come out and say, you know, sex before marriage is wrong. Um, but we sort of said that, but we did say that there needed to be mutuality and uh, respect and a lot of, you know, I mean, I, I can't even remember everything now, but, but basically, like, you know, this is the way we're going to work this 
work this out because this is uh, something in in uh, process. And the reason we took that long is because it took people. Well, first we had to learn out learn how to have a conversation with a whole bunch of people, mm. and then we learn we we went through uh, every everybody's uh, fears and and all of that stuff in another church that I worked in, that I worked in, um, we did an anonymous sex survey that was complete. Uh, because again, we had uh, a sort of, somebody had this bright idea of, and this is back in the day. So it was like a midweek Bible study on sex. Sure. And it was, you just knew everybody was lying. Oh yeah. <laughs> so we did an anonymous sex survey. Mm. And people filled it out. And the information that came back from that was so different to what people said publicly. Oh, I bet. Because, because they were hiding behind, which I think was a good thing. So we had a discussion based on the results of the anonymous survey rather mm. than the, you know, polite Christian, oh, we should wait till marriage, you know. Um, anyway, what was your question? Well, so... I, I work. I, I work with a lot of teenage guys and uh, yeah. and young men, like starting college, and I sort of see kind of an opposite kind of reality. And and I know these are very sort of crass phrases, but I just sit with teenage guys all day. So um, the, the comedian Pete Holmes says that some people approach sex, at least from a guy's perspective, as you know, just a dick masturbating into a pussy. Um, sure, and. If, if Christianity sort of moralizes things too much, I do think what I see with like the hookup culture and just sort of reducing yeah. sex to a transaction, I think misses one important piece for me. And I sort of get this from the the scholarship of a religious studies professor out here in Houston at Rice, Jeffrey Kripal. And he talks mm -hmm. about, you know, human sexuality being one of the portals into the transcendent or into the spiritual and so I, I, I do think that one of the things religion offers, maybe when done well or when reflected on well, is seeing sex as more than just getting off. It, it, it can provide, you know, intimacy and... and but by the same token, uh, Christianity also reduces sex down to transaction. Mm. Because basically Christianity will tell you that what you can't do is uh, masturbate into a, a, a pussy unless you're married. Yeah. And that is the same transaction. Mm. It's just done with a little cross and a fish on it. Got you. Now, that's not to say, I, I, I think, and, and I do think, um, I, I, well, I, I mean, there's a sense in which, I mean, sex is both uh, a transcendent experience. It's also um, it's also a, a death experience, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the French call uh, the orgasm uh, le petit mort, the little death. Mm. Because there's that moment where um, it, everything goes blank. Yeah. And so I, I, I do think that um, 
there has to be more. I mean, I was on the road with a rock and roll band. I, I, I know all about sort of transactional sex. What I did learn, I, I tell you what, the, one of the lessons that I learned when I was on the road with a band, though, is that that goes both ways. Mm. Not, I mean, I'm not going to say it's it, 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 it's fifty fifty, but there, you know, the the I the, there's a cultural impulse where where men are have been freed to. You know, it's like the classic tale of you know you want your son to go out and sow his wild oats, but you want your daughter to be a virgin till she gets married. So, right. so wh- whose daughter do you want your son to go sow wild oats with? You, right. You know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So for women, the 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 opportunity has been denied, whereas men, in a sense, have been privileged mm. to have that. But that doesn't mean that women don't exhibit those same desires and tendencies. I mean, sexual desire is not exclusively male. It's no. just been, priv- it's right. been privileged in, in, in our culture. And I do think that there is, um, I mean, we use sex as a palliative. Mm. I mean, we use sex as a way of, uh, you know, I mean, Lacan says there there's no such thing as a sexual relationship mm. that you know when you when you have sex it's actually a purely not purely but it's essentially a, a, about you mm. and even with the other the other is there for you mm. and um i i do think that uh that we live in a a wild time like you know hookup culture and stuff like that i, I think it, I, I do think it's problematic and and it can be really problematic when it becomes like predatory and reductionist and you just yes. looking looking to get looking to get laid um now if you're looking to get laid and you meet somebody who's also looking to get laid and that's understood right which is a very rare occurrence actually because mm. usually when Say this is what I want. That's actually not what they want. Yes. They're afraid. To, they're afraid to say what they want. You know, and ah. also we're also dealing with the fact that we live in a culture where we actually don't know what we want. Yes, we're, we're conditioned uh, to want things that we don't really want. And again, you know, sort of the Freud and Lacanian, you know, false objects of desire that what we say we want is really not what we want, you know what I mean? And and that's why we feel empty sometimes after getting what we want because it's not really what we want. We've mm. just convinced ourselves that, that, that it is. So there's always something, you know, there's always that lack that we have to, we have to deal with. Um, I, but, uh, and, and, and I do think that we have to deal with, uh, I mean, we we have to deal with um, predatory behavior. Sure. And and I do think that uh, there are challenges, particularly for young men who are still raised with these dumb ideas about what what it means to be uh, a man. And yes. in some ways, I I also think that. Um, 
because in many ways I think women have uh, experienced levels of liberation within the last 20 or 30 years. Mm. I'm not saying fully liberated or any, by any stretch of the imagination, but but women have their act together in a certain way that, that men don't because male tropes and ideas about maleness feel very tired to me, mm. very old-fashioned and out of touch with reality. And I think there's a lot of confusion for people about how you're supposed to act as as a man. I mean, I don't think that's just, I think women have similar challenges, but, but I do think that male behavior um, is uh, a, a real challenge at the moment. And young, young guys, it's, it's a big thing, you know, um, tenderness and gentleness and, uh, and kindness. They're not virtues that we teach people. No, they're not. You're right. Almost despised. And again, um, Adam Phillips' book that I'd recommend everybody in the world read is On Kindness. Okay. I'm going to write that I, down. I it's just stunning because, uh, uh, as he says, um, kindness is often regarded as a weakness and a weak virtue. Oh, it's so true. Really, kindness takes a level of courage that most of us aren't ready for. Mm. I think when it comes to sexuality, kindness is a very, very important factor. Mm. But it's very easy to get swept up in. Uh, and also, the fact that we don't actually talk about these things is also part of the problem. Yes. That's you part know, of why I started leaving, the podcast. Yeah, if you're sort of leaving people to uh, find out from the internet or, you know, to watch porn uh, to, to work out... Um, you know, what, what, what's really going on, which is the, the case for a lot of people. I mean, you know, sure. it's like, we, I mean, sex education is still, <laughs> still seems like the 1950s. To right. Me. Oh yeah. It's not really sex education. It, 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 it's sex limitation. Oh yeah. That's good. And, uh, and, and we're so, uh, afraid of opening doors and so everything becomes prohibition. But, you know, prohibition generates a lot of problems because you're told not to do something. It's the thing that you want to do. But yeah. if you talk about things, um, you can at least, I think, ameliorate some of that potential harm. Mm. And yeah. that, you know, that, that conquering mentality you know which i i mean I, I was very fortunate because you know i sort of came of age in, in a world where sex was both i think in some ways more naive and innocent but also more liberated than mm. than, than it is now uh, even though there's more sex around right i it's it, it's just very 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 different and uh there's a lot of um anxiety around sexuality today and, and you know the weird thing is more and more people aren't fucking anymore right especially young people yeah there's a huge problem in in japan with uh the birth rate because young mm. people are just not marrying they're not having sex 
and I think there's that I, I I do think there's a big a big turnoff <laughs> that's occurring, mm. you know, where people are, are choosing not to because it's too much work, it's too much trouble, mm. it involves too many uh, emotional trauma, you know, traumatic things to work through, and uh, there are so many other options now, you know, virtual and otherwise. Yeah, no, that's good. So you connect sex to death, and that leads me into to wondering about. Your fascination with <laughs> not exclusively, but <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 but no, but but your fascin your fascination with skulls, yeah, and 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 just you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking when it comes to Christianity and religion, or even our our modern Western culture, we're we're sort of afraid of death. We we don't want to talk about it. So yeah, I, I was just curious if you could say more about the skull thing and and just some of reflections on death. Um. Well. I mean, I, I think I, I was, I've always been fascinated with bones. Mm. I don't know why, just uh, from a very early age, bones kind of, I, it might have been a morbid fascination, I, I, I don't know, but, but, I, but I was just fascinated and, I, and I, I, I was just sort of drawn to the whole idea of like the human skull and... Um, the the kind of the stark reality of coming face to face with a skull is that you know you've come face to face with a, a life that is no longer, mm. and yet it's also culturally uh, a symbol. I mean, if you if you spend any time looking at um, the history of Western art and particularly religious art, skulls are everywhere because they're a sign of mortality. Yeah. They're, they're a reminder that we that we all have to face. There's there's one inescapable fact of life, and that is we've been born and we will die. Mm. And there is no escaping that reality. Now, I, I think we've spent an awful lot of time in Western culture doing everything that we can to avoid that. Um, and again, we, we've suffered from putting death to one side and almost pretending that it doesn't happen, even in the way we send people away to die in hospitals and stuff like that. You, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you think about not so long ago, people died at home, surrounded by family, and there was a transition and a ritual and a rite and a passage. And those things still exist, but the way it was handled um, – is different. So I was always sort of fascinated with um, skulls and, and their presence uh, as a symbol of, of both, I think, life and death. Because mm. the skull to me is that a reminder, yes, the person is dead, but they also lived. Mm. It's a sign that somebody actually existed. Somebody was here. Somebody had a life. And that life had, a, I don't know how long that life right. But they lived and breathed and moved before they turned back to bone and then and and then dust and uh, and I think probably I mean I, I've always been a little prone to the melancholic and sometimes to the depressive. Sure, me too. And um, and consequently, I, I've 
sort of looked at death sometimes, you know, like sort of not. And and I've tried not to. I mean, I I I don't think it's an easy thing to face for anybody, you know. I mean, when everybody goes, oh yeah, you know, you just die. I mean, I I I think yeah, I, I agree. Um, but there is the dying, right? That seems a little overwhelming. And of course, when you're younger, you think you're immortal. You always think, but you know, I had a friend that uh, died when I was quite. I had two friends: one that died in an accident, and one that committed suicide. Both within about a year of each other. When I was like sixteen, wow. And uh, it was a very sobering time for me. I, I sort of took it really hard, like um, mm. really, really hard. And uh, I did a lot of thinking about death for a, for a while. And, and, and I, I, I don't know that I really sort of came to terms with it because I think I moved on after a while and just sort of went back to living life. But in the back of my mind, sure. there, there was always this, interest in um the manner of death and and dying you know and i read um, you know ernest becker's book on the denial of death that's one of my favorites yeah what a great book and um and uh the way you know the various ways in which we handle death or don't handle death and all that kind of stuff and and then of course we we've adopted skulls almost in the same way that we've adopted crucifixes in the West mm. as as jewelry. Mm. You know, I mean, again, you know, and we we wear cruci- gold, you know, you know, crucifixes uh, as jewelry, not just not as a symbol of anything other than we just like the shape because we've been conditioned <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah. Like it. And with the cross, you know, we've sort of recovered the day of the dead, and and I, and I do think that 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 um, when when symbols of death ret- float up in the surface of culture, and I, and I do think in the last twenty odd years or so, skulls, particularly in the world of fashion and jewelry and stuff, and you know things like Day of the Dead and Halloween and. Sure. and uh, and things like that. They, I, th- I think they, they do become um, a, 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 a sign that we should pay attention to that we're, we're shifting, we're trying to work out some things. Mm. I really do feel that, you know, whether we're conscious of it or not. I think when those things, I know that, you know, trends can be embraced just because, but um, even with, things like trends it's funny when something becomes part of the cultural fabric and when it doesn't yeah and and, and i think with with skulls and stuff like that we, we live in this era where on the one hand you've got the whole promise of technology and the singularity and uploading your consciousness so you never die you know that whole futuristic side and on the other side of it you've got people tattooing the skulls on themselves 
celebrating the Day of the Dead, buying skulls, putting skulls on everything, glittery skulls, diamond skulls, plastic skulls, painted skulls, you know. And and, and I I do think they become like the the counterpoint and the counterweight to the utopian fantasy Mm. of living forever. I love that. I love that. Would you be okay if I read just a small segment from your book? Because there's a question that, that comes out of it for me that I wanted to explain to you. Okay. So yeah, at, w- at one point – you- I don't remember anything I wrote. So <laughs> just- I find that with some of the authors that I've interviewed, yeah. So for more than 30 years, I have spoken with great regularity and increasing uncertainty about God. I talk about God, but I am not sure I have ever truly believed in God conceptually. God just came with the territory alongside other things I really believed in. But finally, I'm at a stage in life where I find the uncertainty about such things to be truly liberating. It serves as a springboard from which to speak about things I do not know that have yet shaped my life. Only when we lose certainty can we come close to experiencing a sense of the sacred. So one of the things that, that that brought up for me, that's not bad. Yeah, that's fucking amazing. Well, that's the other thing too. I don't read really theology anymore these days, but I really loved your book. I wouldn't call it traditional theology, but anyone out there that's listening that isn't into Christianity or religion would, would really enjoy the book because, Mm -hmm. because it's very well written and super creative and interesting and funny. So here's the question that comes out of that for me. I think you and I both really enjoy the philosopher, theologian, John Caputo. And, you know, in his, yeah. in his later career, he sort of started talking about that God doesn't exist. He insists. And yeah. I'd love for you to riff on that concept. Yeah. Well, well I think for, you know, for, for, for Jack, um, that, that, that comes, you know, from, from his love of uh, Derrida mm. and Derrida's whole idea of the the to come the the, the call and um, I, I think what 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 Jack's getting at is, is in a sense that um, the insistence of God is rather than the existence of God is probably the very thing that I, I sort of said in that thing that you just read. Yeah. Um, there's something, there's a, 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 you know, there's this notion, we call it God, it pulls at us and it draws us towards we don't know what. That, that event that's harbored in the name of God, I think as Caputo puts yeah. it. Yeah. And, 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 and so that, I, I, so that and that's that's the thing that that insists. Mm. And I think what I was trying to say in 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 that little thing that you you read is well a couple of things. One, when when I, if you like, got religion, it happened outside of church, and it was very subjective. And I wasn't really looking for God. I was looking for a pathway to a, a different sense of what it meant to be human. Mm. I wanted to be a deeper human being. 
and uh, for whatever reason at that particular point in time I found within the horizon of Christianity as I saw it from an outsider something that insisted to me but then I got deeper and entrenched in the world of religion and the Mm. business of Christianity which comes with a a set of presuppositions one of which is that it's all about God and you need to you know know this about God and you need to you know God is this and not that you know and all that kind of you know the character of God and the consistency of God you know blah 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 you know God this God and 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 and, and it took me a long time to realize that I just wasn't that interested Mm. in working out uh the parameters of what because it all but it because it seemed unreal to me and at first I thought that was something that I needed to overcome that Mm. I needed to like this encounter where i saw god like moses saw god's ass you know which is which is really <laughs> basically moses saw god's backside yeah if you take yeah. halfway literally he didn't even see god you know he just sort of got a glimpse of a shadow of something and i think that's the insistence it's that that thing that you know to me um that that the religious encounter is an experience that alters every other experience. Mm. So your experience of God is something that alters every other experience you have because now you have a, a sort of reference point or something. But that experience of God is best left vague. Mm. because it's just a something that shifts. We want to, because it is, in a sense, so impactful, we want to flesh it out and describe it and say it's this, not that. Mm. But I don't think we need to. It's an insistence that's inexplicable and uncontainable and in a sense impossible and yet it's possible because we experienced it yeah <laughs> we experienced for a moment we experienced the 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 uh impossible and that insistence is the thing that just pulls at you mm. and it pulls you in certain directions in life towards certain things i don't i don't mean pulls you towards you know going to church right uh, I mean, it, it pulls at the core of your humanity. Yeah. And it calls to um, to an indefinable, unnameable something. Yeah. It doesn't need to be named. I, you it know, just, I, you know, it's like that old saying, you know, deep calls to deep. Yeah. I don't know what that means. I don't either. But, but I know what it means. Sure. You know, you know, I, you know. Oh yeah, no. I, I was gonna. I, I wanted to ask you this at the very beginning when you were talking about Adam Phillips and how you know we we get obsessed with these metaphors of like growth and potential. I don't know yeah. if I can fully agree with this, but I wonder if a better metaphor is depth, and, and that's what God and the insistence of God is about is calling us into some sort of depth dimension in our in our humanity. 
Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, I think that one of the, one of the, I don't know if it's results. Um, I mean, you know, the, 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 um, the subtitle of, of, um, Caputo's book, The Insistence of God, is um, a theology of perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. Wow. And uh, that, that, I mean, that's a mouthful. But, but, I, but I wonder sometimes if, if the fruit of, of religion isn't simply the reminder that there's more to life than meets the eye. Mm-hmm. And that we um, should always be mindful. This, this is why, uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, atheism is just a, a waste of time. Because atheism has to have theism in order to, to exist, you know. So right. atheists, it's atheists, and, atheists and theists are arguing about the same thing. They're arguing about the same the, the the same God. Neither neither am I um, agnostic um, because I think that's just uh, that's what you uh, that it's the alternative to the agnostic the the, the theistic atheistic uh, continuum. You know what I mean? Where you just mm. sort of oh well, it could be the one. Right. You, you know, for me, it's it, it's more. Um, there's an in, there's a there's an event there's an insistence there's a, a lack at the heart of being human mm. that perhaps isn't meant to be filled but which fulfills when we acknowledge it mm. it's a kind of a void at the center of our humanity um, that actually calls us to a, a deeper sense of life. Mm. I don't know. Damn, man, know. that's that's rich. Okay, can I ask you one last question? Of course you can. Okay, so the science fiction author Philip K. Dick has that statement: "Symbols of the divine initially show up in the trash stratum." Yeah, I have been wanting to ask you if you have any thoughts on that, or, or what what that what that conjures up for you. Yeah, well, you know, um, there, there's. Uh, did I write about this in? Did I write about this in that book? I don't I think you know. did, but but I, I think you wrote on themes yeah. that resonate with it. Yeah. Well, so uh, there, there's this uh, this pair of British artists named Tim Noble and Sue Webster. Okay. They used to, they used to be a husband and wife. I'll write that down. And they did a. a, a and they're they're kind of conceptual artists, you know, installations okay. like that. One of the things that they did, they they live, they used to live in uh, East London, uh, in a fairly rundown neighbourhood. And a project that they did was called Trash, mm. and they went around their neighbourhood, and they basically picked up trash, took it back to their studios. And made sculptures out of the trash. But you could only see the sculpture 
when they shined light on the trash mm. and the shadow was cast on the wall. So they would they they made self portraits of each other out of trash. But you couldn't see anything. It just looked like a pile of trash. Yeah. Until they shone a light on it. And then the shadow on the wall was like, oh my God, it's like it's the pair of them. It's their heads on sticks mm. or whatever. And it was a really profound, I think, example of that Philip K. Dick idea is that when you shine light on what seems to be disposable and trashy and, and rubbish, uh, there's something there. And, and I think um, for uh, Philip K. Dick, who's a very interesting figure, I mean, at once, I mean, you know, he had these crazy visitations. Oh, yeah. Fueled his uh, his writing, but also turned him a little manic. You, you know what I mean? Because yeah. Very sort of apocalyptic um, kind of view of things and a very particular and personal interpretation of religion and, yeah. and Christianity and stuff. But, um, I think the point that he makes is that it's sometimes in the most disposable things. Mm. You, it's it's like it's like those stories of um, you know um, that sometimes the kindest people are the poorest people. Yeah, the people with nothing will give you the shirt off their back but people with a closet full of shirts won't give you one and and i i think that's what he's getting at okay that that's a symbol of uh, of something sacred it's a sign of uh, of um the sacred or you know if you go into the um if you go in, into the the new testament um i forget what letter it is but the apostle paul says you know we're the trash of the world. Yeah. We're the shit. We're the shit, the refuse. <laughs> We're the refuse. Um, and yet, why does he say that? He says, because, but, but we're carrying something. Mm. We're carrying, we're carrying a, a, a sense of the, uh, of the sacred. And I guess for me, um, I've always been interested in um, cultural artifacts, the things that, the things that we make, the way that the way shape our lives, and I really love disposable pop culture, and and I, and I think there's a richness that is often overlooked, and uh, it, it, it's why I've never agreed. You know, when when people talk about you know oh secular culture, I don't I don't know what secular culture is. Mm, I agree. It's, I, I, I think it may have existed for a while, but we certainly don't live in a secular society anymore. I mean, Fuck there's, no. There's more religion and religiosity around today than there has ever been in my lifetime. Right. Uh, but it shows up in the most unusual places. In the trash. <laughs> yes. It really upsets the religious people because they want to be the monitors of where it, where it lives. And they say, well, it lives where we are. Mm. 
is a reminder that it actually lives where it wants to. Wow. Humanity is not governed by the powerful. In fact, humanity is often out of the grasp of the powerful, mm. like the most humane, because there's a corruption that comes with authority and power that we never seem to be able to get over. Mm. However, however small a piece of it, you know, we become tyrants very quickly. Oh, yeah. You know, whether it's over a football team or a little church or, a, you know, a mega church or a corporation or a technology or something like that, we all become uh, tyrants really like that. Even progressive we, ethics or progressive political views, we become tyrannical. Yeah, everybody's a fundamentalist. <laughs> right. You know, it's, you know, there's a... a, a great quote, I don't know where it came from, but beware the emperor of one idea. Mm. I love that. Yeah. So Barry, I, I, I thought the title of this episode to kind of honor your book. And I think kind of the substance of a lot of your ideas would be that line from Joyce. God is a shout in the streets. Uh, yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Is, is, is that okay with you? Does that resonate with you? Oh yeah, yeah. I I I love I love that quote because I think it's. I do uh, too. Again, James Joyce. You know, I mean, always, basically. Oh yeah, he was an atheist. You know, well, yeah. There's an awful lot of religion in uh, Ulysses. Oh yeah. And there's a lot of critique of religion, but even that whole conversation, you know, where uh, Stephen Daedalus is. Uh, talking to the the priest and you know and that noise comes in you know the priest hears a noise and uh the shout in the street is actually maybe the shout of god outside the domain of the control of religion yes and i think that beautifully captures kind of the imminent dimension of your theology and and just the whole, yeah. the whole Caputo insistence of God, I, I just thought it was kind of this beautiful way to encapsulate, again, not, not to reduce you to anything or, you know, yeah. you're, you're all about being open in the diversity, but I just, I just thought it was an interesting way to kind of frame it. Yeah, yeah, you can call it where you like, mate. It's your podcast. I appreciate it. <laughs> so <laughs> how do people get a hold of you? I'm sure there's going to be a ton of people that are going to be interested in learning more about you. Where, where, where should they go online to check you out? Um, well, I'm on Instagram a lot. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's <laughs> awesome. It's you, 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 it's, that's where you post a lot of your art, a lot of your yeah, collage. Yeah. Um, I do have a Patreon. Okay. So uh, it's patreon.com slash Barry Taylor. Okay. <laughs> so I put a lot into that. that <laughs> Very creative. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and, and I post talks and stuff on there. Okay. So if people want to, if people want to find out more like that, they can. But yeah, that yeah, you're fine. I'm there. Okay, awesome. But yeah, hey, well, would you mind just ending with kind of the tagline of the podcast, just by saying, "Continue the conversation." Continue the conversation. Thank you, Barry. You're so welcome.
Thank you again for listening to this episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Let's try to connect. Reach out to me. You can go to my website at Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com or you can Google my name, Kike Autry on Google, and there you'll find my Facebook and Instagram accounts. If you would like to schedule an appointment, you can go to my website or you can go to the website of the practice that I serve at, katieteenandfamilycounseling.com. I can't wait to hear from you. Please share my content and remember, continue the conversation. Thank you.